Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 130. On today's show, we talk about Egyptian megatombs, Paleolithic lighting systems, and turkey tattooing tools. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the Archaeology Show. Hello. So we're leaving the air conditioning on <laughs> because... Disclaimer. It's summer. It's 100 degrees. Yeah. There's a constant <laughs> coming up from my right side, and uh, hopefully I'm a good enough editor that I got some of that out, but probably not. Wait, what did that sound like again? <laughs> so, And also, I was hoping to have only be because I thought of this literally 25 minutes ago, but it's hoping to have maybe a guest co-host on today. Paul Zimmerman from the Architect Podcast arrived in our camp yesterday yeah. to work on this project. But, of course, I told him 25 minutes ago and said, hey, do you got time to read three like big articles and talk about them <laughs> on the podcast? And he's like, mm, no. Yeah, no. So, that one, the first article, is it would take 25 minutes just to read yeah, that one. Yeah. It's a long article. Should just wait for the movie. So it's anyway, TV series actually. I know. Anyway, our fabulous producer Kimmy has already got three articles for our next recording. So I'm going to ship that over to Paul. See if he can take a look at it, and maybe we'll have him as a guest co-host on the next episode. Sounds maybe fun. We'll replace Rachel. Who knows? Rude. I know. You're the who only would, reason people listen to this. <laughs> who Who would make fun of you if I wasn't here to do it? It's true. Well, <laughs> Paul does when I'm not there. So there's that. <laughs> Maybe me and Paul do a podcast without you. That I mean, go go have did, at did it. you almost say yeah, that's the dream? That is the dream, actually. <laughs> so Okay, so we've got three articles for you this time around, and this first one, as Rachel mentioned, is uh is a long, long article. It's like a feature article in Smithsonian magazine. And it's called Inside the Tombs of Saqqara, and it's over in Egypt. And actually, this came from Smithsonian Magazine, as I mentioned, the July-August 2021 issue. Now, we may or may not mention this again. I don't know. We'll see. But this actually, by the time you hear this, I think, is coming out as a show on the Smithsonian um, yeah, channel. Yeah, on the channel. Yeah. If you, get, if you get the Smithsonian channel on TV or if you have streaming service and you have Paramount Plus, formerly known as CBS then you also have Smithsonian. I'm hoping we'll be able to watch it when it yeah, comes out. Yeah, I hope so too. I definitely saw when I was looking it up online, like at least two episodes. It wasn't really clear how long of a run it is, but mm -hmm. they're definitely doing like a full on like TV series feature. And it sounds like based on the length of this article that there is definitely enough content there to fill a whole feature TV series. There's a lot. Yeah, It's called Tomb Hunters. So yeah. look that up. Look for two, and, uh, two hunters. I can't say I, I like the name all that much, 
Not a huge fan. Not a huge fan. Tombs, but no, and it makes it sound like it's okay to just like go hunting for artifacts and things, which is really not. But anyway, anyway, so let's talk about Saqqara. So it is about twenty miles south of Cairo on the Nile's west bank. Like to be honest, a lot of things are. A lot of good stuff there. Right. Uh, It's right next to one of the most famous complexes in all of Egypt, the Step Pyramid, which is the oldest Egyptian pyramid. It was built back in the 27th century BC by, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Dozer, um, Mm D-J-O-S-E-R, of an old kingdom pharaoh who basically kicked off the whole pyramids or tombs era. Yeah. I think we briefly talked about this pyramid in our parallels episode, yeah, because it was the first of the the mm. pyramids, and it sort of started the whole trend of pharaohs creating funerary pyramids for themselves, basically. Yeah, well, and this whole area has been used, as we'll talk about, as a as a burial ground. Basically, there's more than a dozen other pyramids, temples, tombs, and walkways that stretch across this whole entire five mile strip of land. Mm-hmm. So. One of the focuses of the article is on a gentleman named, uh, an archaeologist named Mohammed Yosef, and he, <laughs> there's actually a pretty crazy picture. Yeah. Here. But he went down into a shaft that had been closed for 2,000 years, and they opened it up and went 30 feet down, and there's a picture of him just basically hanging off a rope with like a loop at the end for his foot. Yeah. Uh, with a wooden structure that the article mentioned is no different than they've been making for hundreds of years. Yeah. And he's just like, whatever, Indiana <laughs> just Jones. Just like step into a loop on a rope. Yeah. Hope there's Head no snakes down. down there. I'm sure it's safe. Yeah. There's no OSHA in Egypt. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, but he found down there uh, a large underground chamber filled with golden figurines, carved wooden chests, and piles of blackened linen, among other things. Mm-hmm. But what he found basically with some of the stuff that in this first chamber that we're talking about was people that were buried there had wealth and privilege Yeah, just by looking at them. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, but then he also said that, or the article says that strangely dozens of expensive coffins, and I guess when they say expensive, they mean like the, the gold gilted coffins with all the ornate, uh, yeah. you know, just like you would expect to see like an Egyptian burial coffin. Yeah, like in yeah. one of the Great Pyramids or whatever, that, yeah. that sort of really fancy, like King Tut, that yeah. sort of thing. These were jammed together and piled up to the ceiling like they were in a warehouse. They were just like jammed in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess they were running out of space for burials probably, or it was location and people really wanted to be buried near a particular area. Mm-hmm. So the people who were getting buried there didn't know that they were getting jammed in. <laughs> like a warehouse no and their their family probably didn't either because i would imagine regular people weren't allowed in the crypts right you know in the actual tombs it was probably priests or workers even Mm -hmm. well by the time it got down there to actually place the uh the 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 coffins Mm -hmm. interesting they didn't really cover this but they made they made the point of saying that the floor was covered in rags and bones like maybe there was a little looting at some point or something i don't know either looting or just the the degradation of the coffins yeah. themselves for the ones that weren't as high quality they they could have decomposed and things could have fallen I mean, yeah, out of them so we're talking three thousand years ago yeah five thousand years ago yeah exactly yeah so, yeah that's yeah, pretty crazy but these are called these tombs like this they call them mega tombs yeah uh, which is pretty crazy because um, there's plenty of i guess smaller tombs all over the egyptian landscape but these were mega tombs yeah and, and i think that's what's unique about this place is that they had never seen a tomb this yeah. large or with that many individuals interred in it with this good of preservation yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah um this is what they call an acropolis or a city of the dead 
and you know they say it once served the Egyptian capital of Memphis specifically because Memphis is like right nearby. Mm-hmm. So, and that is what the town in or the city in Tennessee is named after is this Egypt, right? Because there's weird Egyptian things all over Memphis, Tennessee. Is there really? Yeah, there's oh. also like Roman things too. I think there's a Parthenon in mm-hmm. uh, Memphis. If, mm-hmm. Oh no, that's Nashville. I think the Parthenon is in Mash- Nashville. In Memphis, there's definitely a pyramid. There's like a glass pyramid. Oh. Yeah. guess they're just owning the name. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, so moving on, we're really talking about here how this opens up a window into a period in late Egyptian uh, history, in ancient Egyptian history, when Saqqara was at the center of a, what they call a national revival in pharaonic culture and attracted visitors from across the known world. So not mm-hmm. only was this a place where people buried their dead... And it was like specifically dedicated to that, not just like put grandpa out in the desert, you mm-hmm. know, but they specifically use this as what we would call a cemetery. Yeah. But they uh, apparently it attracted visitors as well because it was probably with all the pyramids and the monumental structures above mm-hmm. ground. I don't even know if a lot of people even would have known what was beneath their feet. Right. I mean, archaeologists didn't. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Saqqara has been known for its pyramids for a long time because they're pretty; those are pretty obvious things to see mm-hmm. and hard to miss, um, but also for its subterranean caverns. So, you know, again, the article doesn't really go into this too much, but it tells me that there's natural caverns down there that were probably used in their somewhat natural state, but also more than likely, in fact, almost certainly carved out mm-hmm. and, you know, modified, Yeah, you know, for use. So maybe that's why this entire location was chosen to begin with. Yeah, it might be. I, I do think I I read that it was partly the location. People just really wanted to be buried in this particular yeah. location. So they and maybe there was a natural cavern that they started with and then they carved it out. But but I'm sure that they expanded it to allow for more people to be buried there when they realized how popular the area was. So It's really interesting with that, too, because this is the oldest mega tomb necropolis in Egyptian history that yeah. we are aware of anyway. Yeah. And this is also the site of the first uh, step pyramid that mm-hmm. was put up. So it kind of makes you wonder if the ruler, you know, Dozier who who made that pyramid is looking around and he's going, you know what? Yeah, we're buried in these big caverns. That's great. I like the space. Uh, he probably wasn't even aware that in other areas of the world, people were just born, buried in the dirt, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sure some Egyptians were too, but they seem to favor these spaces that were open and the coffin is just put in a shelf or, you know, on the floor mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And it seems like when that probably started to fill up or when he's his head started to fill up and he's like, you know what? I'm bigger than this. I need to be <laughs> above ground, but still in a space. Right. AKA pyramid. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know if they even had the ability to build a large like building or would have. I mean, we think of buildings as big square things, but I don't even know if they could have or would have done that. And a pyramid is somewhat of a natural shape yeah. um, to build architecturally. Yeah. So, and a little bit easier to stabilize, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still really difficult to get those big heavy stones up there. But once you do, they're they're kind of, you know, helping each other out for stability. So, yeah. And his was a step pyramid. Yeah. So that's even easier and, well, easier to construct, relatively yeah. speaking. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, Saqqara wasn't really known to the outside Egypt world too much until French Egyptologist Augusta Marietta, who's also the first director of Egypt's Antiquity Service, visited the area in 1850. So fast forward to around 2017-18, the site, di- site director, whose name was um, Waziri, chose to excavate near a temple called the 
Vubastion, dedicated <laughs> to the cat goddess of Bastet. And if you've ever listened to the Archeo Animals podcast, one of the hosts, Simona, her cat is frequently heard on the show and mm-hmm. she's constantly referring to him and her cat's name is Bastet. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this tomb was uh, cut into the limestone cliffs near the site's eastern boundary uh, around 600 BC. So anyway, they started looking around an area that seemed untouched, that seemed like it was unexcavated. And in December of 2018, discovered a 4,400-year-old tomb, intact and ornately carved, and belonging to a high-ranking priest named Watai, W-A-H-T-Y-E. I wonder why it was untouched. Because we know that, well, we know a couple things about Egypt, right? Number one, that it's been looted a lot over the years. Like, that happened a lot. Yeah. And also that we have found so much there. We have already found so many things. So so what made them think to look in this place, I wonder? And what what allowed it to survive and be untouched by looters and by, by genuine excavators, too, I wonder? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, Egypt is surrounded by sand, and uh, things get buried pretty quickly in the wind True, out there. True, yeah. So I think they're... Going under the assumption in an area like that, that there's probably something just about everywhere when you've got 5,000 plus years of history. Yeah. And a city nearby. And, yep. you know, you can probably just keep digging and keep finding stuff. In 2020, they, this is what brings us back around to the beginning of the segment here. They found a vertical shaft and dug 30 feet down into the bedrock. And that's when the first of the mega tombs was discovered. They didn't dig it. It was just a shaft that had been dug into the bedrock, right? The shaft had been dug, but I think it was filled with sand. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, they like so, excavated the shaft and then... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the shaft was dug into the limestone. Okay, So yeah. Anyway, they still don't know how many are buried there. That's how many coffins are inside mm-hmm. of it. Um, it's the largest concentration of coffins ever unearthed in Egypt. And I pretty much stopped taking notes there because this article just keeps on going. It does. <laughs> one of the things I thought was interesting was there were so many coffins in there. There were coffins at the base of the shaft yeah. that were just like buried into the floor. Yeah. They're just like, well, we've filled it all the way up. We're going to have to start stacking them up right here. Yeah. So I'm trying to like visualize this and hopefully there'll be some better images in the TV series when it comes out. Well, I'm sure there will be. Because I'm trying to visualize like this is a 30, a 30 foot shaft. Are there like like rooms off of the shaft on either side of it that are filled with the coffins? Is that how that works? It sounds or? like there's just like big, big, big areas that are filled with coffins. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's hard yeah. To say, though. Or is it like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Or is it just end in a large cavern at the bottom or I don't know I, I wish I had a better idea of the the layout of this thing because I'm not quite understanding it from reading the article maybe the TV show will be better maybe well there's one thing I do know if you had lived back then and you were trying to place coffins in there you would certainly have needed to light your way that is that is very true gosh what would make you think of lighting things well, I'm just wondering what they would have used. Could it have been a torch, a fireplace, <laughs> or a lamp of some sort? Do you think some archaeologists have maybe studied light? We'll find out in segment two. Back in a minute. <laughs> Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 
10% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 130. And as mentioned, we're going to move to lighting. There's an article in PLOS One titled, Scientists Reconstruct Cave Lighting Systems Used by Early Humans. And actually, that's not the name of the article. I found uh, another article called that and linked to the Plus One article. The Plus One article, if you're looking for it and don't want to pull our show notes because we have the article here, is The Conquest of the Dark Spaces, an Experimental Approach to Lighting Systems in Paleolithic Caves. So what we're going to focus on is the first part of the article where they really just kind of nail down the different primary lighting systems that were mm-hmm. used that we have evidence for. And then you can read this article to read about the experimental techniques they used to basically recreate these lighting sources inside caves and add some parameters and characteristics to them to decide what are the best environments that these lighting sources would have worked in. Right. So definitely check out the article. The link is in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 130. So first a little bit of a I guess, helpful hint to reading papers like this. There is a lot of really thick stuff in the middle. Yeah. Because when people write papers, they don't use any sort of terms that a human has read. They find a thesaurus and the scientific names and they use those instead. (laughs) So, but the best way to start reading an article, especially if you don't know anything about it, if you think it's interesting by the title, read the abstract, of course. Mm -hmm. The abstract, if it's written well, should tell you the basic hypothesis that they lay out. Like, what is the question they're trying to answer? And then, to be honest, it should give you the answer to that question, uh, for the most part, in a very simplistic term. So they should go a little bit through the, here's what we're doing, here's kind of how we did it, and here's what we found out. That's what an abstract is for. Right. It's not an introduction. It's a shortened version of the article. So read the abstract, and then look at the pictures. That's not a joke. Like, look at the pictures. You can Mm -hmm. tell a lot about what they're going to talk about by just looking at the pictures of the figures, I should say. And then scroll all the way down to the conclusions. And then if you're still interested in reading more, you can you can start at the top or Go you can just to read through. Yeah. yeah. So this one was really dense though. It was. And I, I would say I read pretty closely the top part here that were that I took the notes on about the actual torches mm-hmm. and fireplaces and stuff like that that they read about. And just because just it was really interesting and it was a little less about the experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was pretty cool. But you're right, it does get into some pretty um, some pretty detailed things later on. Anyway, uh, just a little bit about fire. They mentioned here fire control allowed the first development of symbolic behavior in deep caves by around 176,000 years before present. So that's a long time we've been 
using fire to light our way through these crazy caves. Mm-hmm. And what do they mean of by symbolic behavior? I think they just mean like the rock art and drawing. Okay. Yeah, pictographs. So stuff drawing like that. things on the walls, yeah. basically. Yeah. Okay. Because it's it's more than likely that humans have been seeking shelter in caves for much longer than that. Yeah. And in fact, pre-humans as well. You yeah. know, other other ancestors. So, and when they started developing, you know, fire, then uh, that would allow them to go in there much earlier. In fact, we don't have a ton of evidence of any sort of rock art dating back 176,000 years. I mean, right. that's a long time ago. So, but we do have evidence of fire going back that far. Mm-hmm. Lighting residues increased in the upper Paleolithic, they say. And that's if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around 25 to 40,000 years ago, I think, mm-hmm. and, and a little further back. But the physical aspects of Paleolithic lighting resources are poorly understood, so that's why these guys are studying them. Yeah, that's really interesting, and it's not something I had thought about before, yeah. but like, obviously they go into a dark cave to draw whatever figurines they yeah. feel are necessary for whatever purposes, but they have to have a way to see what they're doing and mm-hmm. how they're getting there, so that's super interesting to think about how they did that. Yeah, it makes me wonder, too, for some of the more famous caves that have been known for decades now, early people that were looking at those, Westerners mm-hmm. or whatever, probably didn't pay too much attention to what they were stepping on and oh, probably destroyed a lot of information. Very well could have, yeah. Also, brought lighting sources of their own before electricity. Yeah, So definitely. That's interesting. The paper aims to characterize the main lighting systems, and they decide to do that through experimental techniques. So we're going to talk about the main lighting systems here in a minute, but again, the last half of the paper is all about coming up with a set of parameters, like they have different parameters, like the the distance that you have light before it goes from X number of lumens to zero lumens, Mm -hmm. and then the radius of that light, what it can produce. And uh, the smoke that it lets off, because smoke was a huge factor for some of these sources. Some Mm -hmm. are more smoky than others. And when your cave fills up with smoke, if it's not very well ventilated or you're up into a pocket where there is no ventilation, the smoke's going to rise. And just like they tell you to stop, drop, and roll, you do that because there's no smoke down below until it all fills up. Right. So you have to consider the smoke aspect of this whole thing. So each lighting system's characteristic combustion residues were also identified because that's how we know these things exist and what they look like. What's left over after it was, you know, in, on fire? Mm-hmm. It's just like looking at the coals in your in your campfire. So using experimental archaeology, they tested all these things and then came up with some conclusions. We'll talk about that in a second. But the main types of fire sources that they looked at were wooden torches, portable fat lamps, and fireplaces. Hmm. So we'll talk about all those. Yep. Torches. The residues of torches are scattered charcoals, basically, and black marks on the walls and ceilings. And something I have a little bit later, uh, they just mentioned at the end of the article, one of the interesting things about torches is that some were found made with, like, multiple branches lashed together, whereas when you think of a torch in, like, a movie or something like that that's poorly done, oh, it's, like it's a, a single piece of yeah, wood or it's something. Like a pe- it's like a stick. Yeah. <laughs> but they said that uh, in their experiments that those torches that were made with branches lashed together actually lasted longer Uh and it's almost inevitable that it will start to extinguish itself after a little while just because it starts to go out because your fire is burning from the top and trying to come down and uh if you just kind of like wave it around a little bit a lot more air can get in through there which will help relight the torch oh so they were much more efficient than Uh like single stick or or only one or two stick type torches right that makes sense yeah So the next type was a fireplace, a typical thing that you would think of, just like a campfire that you would make. Uh Those were located... So by by fireplace, they mean just 
like, it's like a hearth, just fire. like an open fire on the yeah. ground. Yeah. yeah. Okay. These were often located in the deeper and darker areas of the caves, and combustion residues were often uh, concentrated instead of scattered around, yeah, as you would sense. expect, right? Just like a hearth. They had different types of remains inside the little fire area, charcoal, burn bones, ashes, and soot. It would make sense to have that stuff, too, because depending on how long you are living inside of the cave, doing your doing your cave art, or maybe just hanging out in there, who yeah. knows? You're going to cook burials. in there. And, I mean, there's burials and stuff in yeah, there, that's too. True. So. She's also going to cook in there Yeah. and uh, you know do different things. Yeah. So. Uh, one of the more, I guess, modern versions of this fire sources is uh, portable grease lamps. Mm-hmm. And they always included some sort of depression or pocket. Sometimes it was just like, you know, animal fat rubbed on a flat piece of rock. You know, it wasn't very special. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes they had like shells or something else where they would literally take animal fat, put it in there, and then use uh, some sort of wick type material to essentially burn it like a candle. Hmm. Like you would imagine any lamp today. So, and then they could they could take these around. The combustion remains from these are the carbonized remains of the wick, again, like you would imagine on the top of a candle. Yep. And signs of smoke or soot, and uh, and the animal fat used as a fuel preserved directly on the def- on the thing if they found the actual. Lamp. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. Must eat. Anyway, the rest of the article is really all about the experimental archaeology, and mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool because they used a really cool methodology to first they must have had many discussions to talk about the types of fire the materials that were used how long would they last what is the radius that they had for an effectiveness how much smoke did they put off and then they actually went inside of caves and did all these techniques that's cool and and measured all these things so um, definitely check out the article and uh, and take a look at that yeah that's really interesting because I guess to get like a true view of how the different the different sources for fire for light would have worked. Right. They have to go into an actual dark place. And if you want to know if the, what the airflow is like, what the feeling of it is like, you really have to be in an actual cave. Yeah. So that's neat that they, they like legit did that. <laughs> yeah. And their conclusions were basically uh, what you would expect. Use the best tool for the right, for the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. So they said with quite a bit of certainty that, and I, I doubted this at first, and then I thought about the evidence. But they said with quite a bit of certainty that, oh, in this type of environment, they would have used this. In this mm-hmm. type, they would have used this. And I'm thinking, well, if all they had was a torch, they would have used that, mm-hmm. right? But they're basing that not only on their experimental results and where those work the best, but the experimental results back up the archaeological data that say, hey, in these types of environments, we found more of these fireplaces. Right. In these types of environments, we found more torches. Right. Stuff like that. So... It's it's kind of one backs up the other, which is what you want to see. Yeah, I'm, I imagine a non-portable fire fireplace mm-hmm. is I, it has to be a very specific set of circumstances that even allow that to work because yeah. you need ventilation so you don't get too much smoke buildup and you need enough fuel to keep it going. So it yeah, it totally makes sense that it it would not work in all circumstances. Well, one of the interesting things too is they found that the torches in their experimental results put off the most smoke. Oh, really? Yeah, I have a feeling it's probably because if you're lashing a bunch of branches together, they're probably smaller, greener yeah. branches, maybe with even some leaves on them. Yeah, and that could produce a lot of smoke. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're making a fire just on the floor, I mean, you typically use like logs and stuff. You know, so well, which can be smoky. Yeah, but maybe less so than a bunch of small branches. Yeah. So definitely interesting. And then I wonder when do the fat burning 
lamps. Did they did they give a date for when they started using that? Because that seems like it would be technology that comes along a little bit later too. Yeah, and they actually attributed this mostly to the Magdalenian period, and uh-huh. I did not look up what the time frame on that is. Okay. Um, but if you look up the Magdalenian, you can find out. But uh, yeah, I, I imagine it's a little bit later period, to be honest. Um, yeah, just there's a little side. bit more technology that goes into yeah. making sure that that will work. So Yeah, but don't take us to task on that because I did not look that up. Yeah, So interesting. Anyway, yeah, you got the full article right here on PLOS One, so definitely go check that out. And I imagine if you wanted to take your art with you uh, in those caves, like if you're just like, you know, stippling up a bison or something in there or, or, a, or a you know mastodon or something like that, I mean how could you take that with you if you wanted to leave? If you're like, listen, I don't want to come in this cave every time. It's dark and I'm scared. So how would you take that with you? Well, I mean, you could draw it on something that is leaving with you. But what leaves the cave with you? I guess you do. Oh. Yeah. Your body? I know. Tattoos? Let's talk about tattooing in the next segment. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 130. This is the final segment, and as mentioned, we're going to talk about tattooing, but oddly enough, not in Europe or China or anywhere like that. We're going to talk about it in Tennessee, in the United States. Exciting. I Only know. one state over from where I got my tattoo. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so I actually first saw this article in a publication called Science News for Students. Um, it's called Oldest Tattoo Tools, Tennessee Native American. That's the actual link there. But anyway, they link to the actual Science Direct-based Journal of Archaeological Science report, and I don't think you can see the whole thing. But I will tell you, Aaron Dieterwolf is one of the authors here, and Tanya Perez is one of the authors. We've interviewed both of them before on the Archaeology Podcast Network, mm-hmm. and I've heard many academics say that if you just email them, they will send you a copy of the paper because <laughs> they don't get paid by anybody when you pay to download these reports. <laughs> so they're more than happy to send you a copy, and they're allowed to do that too. Oh, so. That's cool. And I know Aaron, I don't have his Instagram on me, but he's got a Instagram channel that's all about tattooing and prehistoric oh, cool. Native American tattooing. Yeah, because yeah. I think Life in Ruins interviewed him too. Mm-hmm. That's where I first heard about that. Neat. So, so 
this article starts out uh, with a pretty good picture of some turkey bones, if you look at the original article. And not the original article. If you look at the uh, Science News for Students article, mm-hmm. uh, it's got some sharpened turkey bones, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I know. That picture is really, really neat. You should definitely yeah. check it out. Yeah, they look like just long bones that are sharp. That are sharpened. Yeah. 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 So... This was found at the Tennessee site of Fernvale, and it was excavated in 1985. So they must have been going back through some older collections mm-hmm. and started really looking at this stuff. As think, often happens with archaeology. Yeah, well, I think Aaron and possibly Tanya as well have been into tattooing and things like this for a long time. So they're probably, you know, combing through some old old records and site reports and stuff like that, trying mm-hmm. to find evidence of this stuff. The bones they found are pigment stained, and they're the world's oldest known tattooing tools. Not the world's oldest known evidence of tattooing. We'll right. talk about that. But the oldest tools that have been found. Right. So that's an important distinction. We're not talking about the oldest tattoos here. But this does extend the Native American tattooing traditions back at least a thousand years earlier than was previously thought. Mm-hmm. Which, of course... Anytime we make a concrete statement that says, tattooing dates to here, we find something a thousand years older. <laughs> so Yeah. It's hard to put an earliest date on things, that's for sure. Right. Can you think of the oldest tattoos that we have evidence for? Uh, Probably the Iceman, right? Let's see the Iceman, that's right. He lived around 5,250 years ago, and he was covered in tattoos. Yeah. And that's the oldest... That's the oldest person we found that mm-hmm. has tattoos but that's probably only because he was also one of the best preserved people yeah you don't I'm, get a yeah. lot of skin <laughs> no. in in preserved humans so mm-hmm. like to have skin is unusual so well the silver lining of climate change melting pretty much all of the ice in the world means that we might find more we might find more yeah, yeah that's true Anyway, they did. The article mentioned some experiments that were done out of Canada. Um, I think it was in uh, Quebec. They used bone tools to tattoo lines in fresh slabs of pig skin. The bone tools that were used were coated in a homemade ink made of soot, water, and wax. Hmm. I don't know what would have been used as wax five thousand years ago. Bees, maybe. From but bees. could you use like animal fat? Um, Is that waxy enough? Like if it's like distilled well, it's, a little bit, it depends. They might have to process yeah. it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so though. I think. Hmm. Anyway, if the bone is sharp enough, it was used to make a series of punctures in the skin, and they went down um, several millimeters mm-hmm. into the skin. I can't imagine it felt great. That's interesting. So, how do they know? How do they know that they actually punctured the skin with this? And the reason here's here's why I'm asking. There are lots of forms of tattooing and ways to tattoo, right? Like Hana. Yeah, so I'm like thinking of the Indian tradition mm-hmm. where it's drawn on your skin, but then it, it washes away after, you know, I think a month or so, something like that. I think the sharpened nature of these indicate that they weren't drawing with them. They were uh-huh. puncturing with them. Okay, um, that's and true, when you, yeah. When you do puncture the skin, the, the ink gets in between your your skin, your layers of your dermis there, your mm-hmm. epidermis and your, um, what is the one below it called? The... Uh, just anyway, dermis, your, your right? dermi. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> anyway, it gets down in there and then stays there. Okay. Uh, that's how tattooing works, right? Mm-hmm. It goes under that outer layer of skin and basically shines through. So and then my second like thing that this makes me think is this could not have been hygienic. Oh, I mean, <laughs> probably I, not. I wonder how many infections were caused by tattooing with animal bones into your skin. 3,000 or 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, couldn't have been great. Yeah. Interesting, um, though. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It makes me wonder, like, how did that start? You know what I mean? Yeah. Who who first took a 
probably an already sharp fragment of a bone and just kind of poked themselves with it and said, oh, that's fun. Let's put some stuff on it. Yeah. And like who figured out that it would stay? Yeah. Because that is a very specific process that lets that happen. And and specific material and everything too because your body is pretty good at processing things and getting it out of there Mm -hmm. so like i imagine that the ink that they use has to be of a of a composition that your body won't get rid of well how many how many ink types were used that were actually just poisonous to put into your bloodstream oh true yeah yeah Yeah, that's another thing that they wouldn't have really understood is what was poison for your body yeah of course like one person dies then you know they probably start stop doing it, but <laughs> oh, I doubt that. Keep it rolling. Yeah, well, and that's actually a good point because they might not have even realized that the reason the person died is because of yeah. whatever they put into their their skin. So, yeah. oh my gosh, tattooing, prehistoric tattooing, so dangerous. <laughs> I mean, we only discovered like germs like 150 years ago. Yeah, totally. You know, we didn't know why people died. Yeah, you know? which okay. So, so thinking about the danger aspect of tattooing, right? It must have been really 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 important to these groups to do the tattoos if even given all the dangers associated with it they still did it so mm-hmm. it would be so cool if we could get some more context around it around what they were doing why what it looked like all that kind of stuff that would be so neat but yeah i can't imagine that's there's gonna be a, a frozen body somewhere in tennessee that pops up <laughs> I don't. I don't think there's a place where that's gonna. Probably not too many of those in Tennessee. No, probably not that yeah. kind of preservation, unfortunately. But yeah. anyway, it would be very interesting to find out why in context. All right. Well, this Thanksgiving, I want you to take a big bite of a turkey leg and then jam it into your arm and oh. tell me what it looks like. Oh no, that's <laughs> not gonna. That's not gonna do. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we've got right now. So as I mentioned, we'll be back next week with three more news articles and possibly a third guest co-host in Paul Zimmerman. I'm going to try to get him on the show. (laughs) Otherwise, if you're interested in that kind of thing, check out the Archaeotech podcast next week if you're listening to this in real time. And we will be talking about, with Paul here on site, our new solar setup and just mobile power sources and things like that to use in the field and while camping on the Archaeotech podcast. So... Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening, and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.